Hello, you're listening to GradCast, the official podcast and radio of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. My name is Elizabeth Muller. And I'm your co-host, Claire Bottini. And today we're sitting down with Justin Robar to talk sports, education, and sports development. So hi, Justin, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Elizabeth. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. So I'm wondering, just to kick us off, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your academic research. Yeah, so I'm originally from uh, Gary, New Brunswick, a small town, um, and I grew up playing rugby uh, in high school, and that eventually uh, took me to coaching rugby in rural Africa in my uh, third year of undergrad, and when I uh, went to coach in rural Africa, I was in uh, Zambia, Botswana, and Namibia, and it kind of sparked a, um, an interest and a goal in me to use the power of sport for good. I was coaching with a sport for development program, which basically uses sport for educational purposes and developmental outcomes. Um, and I also had a very positive experience playing rugby growing up. It gave me a lot of guidance, um, a lot of lifelong friends and things along those lines. So that trip, along with courses I was taking in my undergrad, like sociology of sport, and I took an independent study about uh, sport for development, kind of led me to want to pursue how can we use sport for good and how we can do this properly and achieve the most developmental outcomes possible. Because what I was finding out in some of these sociology courses is that there is a lot of problems associated with sport for development, um, like power, uh, race relations, global north-south dynamics. Um, so issues around like me as a middle-class white man coaching rugby in uh, rural Africa and the, what is inherently problematic about that. But what I found was when I was coaching these kids and I have one very evident uh, memory of kicking a rugby ball to a kid and just seeing the smile on their face. And through that trip, I always thought, there is good here. So my goal became to understand how we can do this properly, which meant, led me to doing my master's at Brock and my research focused on community development through sport. Uh, and I coached with the same organization and did research um, exploring what community members thought the impacts of this program was. And now I'm at Western um, and my research is focusing on uh, sport clubs in Canada and their capacity to integrate newcomers. So how sport clubs can be leveraged to, to help with the integration of newcomers. And I'm also working on how uh, knowledge translation between academia and practitioners in sport for development can, can be better conducted because right now there's a disconnect between research being done and the information that's getting to practitioners. That's really incredible. Yeah. I was really amazed because you have such, in the end, it's quite a diverse background that you're doing research, but also applied work and working with community and communication. So that's, that's quite impressive. So yeah, my first question I have, it's, so you did your, uh, your master on the um, development of sport in uh, African rural community. How did it go? Can you share a bit, us, a bit more of the experience with us? Yeah, so I was, uh, I went and coached with the same organization again. So I was there for two weeks. Um, and the whole, ba basically my research was interviewing the community members and former participants about what they thought the impacts were. Um, so I interviewed teachers, 
I interviewed parents of uh, kids who are in the programming. I interviewed former participants, um, coaches, and some of the, the findings were that um, there was pro-social development and this, this differed from previous research or done. A lot of the sport for development programs will say sport leads to these pro-social outcomes, but they're defined by a very Western ideal of what a pro-social outcome is. Um, but I wanted to understand what the community members thought. So they were telling me how students were, uh, who were participating in the rugby programming, they were better critical thinkers in class. They were more likely to participate. Um, and it had an overwhelmingly more positive effect on the young girls because in this programming, it had to be 50% female participants and 50% male participants. So teachers were actually telling me that uh, the, the youth were more likely to participate in class because they felt they were equal on the rugby pitch. So it was extending past the rugby uh, and into the classroom. And um, it's the same for the coaches. 50% of the coaches were required to be uh, female. So it was also giving the young girls uh, role models to look up to. And one teacher I remember told me that them having a role model to look up to uh, allowed them to dream to be a teacher or join the military or go to school to be a doctor, where in this community, a lot of girls would drop out of school. But due to the rugby programming, they had to be in attendance at school to participate in the rugby programming. So parents were more likely to send their kids to school during the rugby season because there was no real recreation opportunities for the, the youth. So it ended up benefiting them both physically, uh, the research on physical activity is well-documented, but they were also getting an increased opportunity for education. So that's just a little bit of what I learned um, and found that they were uh, experiencing as benefits from the programming. You know, you, you mentioned sort of these pro-social outcomes being very westernized. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and maybe give a couple of examples. Um, when we associate with sports, like the pro-social outcomes, it's like, being on time, working in a team, um, determination, hard work, which are all things that I benefited from sport and I felt were benefits, but in a different community and in a different cultural context, those might not apply. So it was interesting to see what they thought the benefits and the pro-social benefits were instead of just assuming that they're the same benefits that I got from sport or other people uh, get from sports they were telling us this is happening in the programming and it's leading to this in the classroom or it's leading this to, in, to this in their everyday lives. So it was cool to see the overlap and the differences of what, um, what they thought were the pro-social outcomes. And one, for example, uh, sport can be very competitive uh, in North America and Europe where a lot of these volunteers come from. I played rugby at a competitive level and that's not always necessarily a good thing. It can lead to some negative things like cheating and um, aggression and things along those lines. So that's sometimes we think of competitiveness as a positive, but that never really came up in the, the what they were identifying as pro-social outcomes. So it wasn't as emphasized as, as we might emphasize it here. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty cool. It basically didn't take back the same, yeah, it wasn't the same outcome for them than it would be for us in North America, for example. And I find it very, very interesting. In general, what would those kids would be 
I'm guessing they, they most of them won't be pursuing uh, long-term um, studies. How, what did your study uh, find on how the sports were helping them? So you mentioned that the kids were staying in school for longer. So in the end, for on their learning path, what was the outcome of doing sports? Um, so the the sports sessions are also paired with like life skill sessions, and these oh. life skill sessions are uh, on topics that are identified by the local rugby development officer by working with the community. So things range from like hygiene to road safety to um, nutrition and things that are relevant to the actual uh, the the youth in their everyday lives. So maybe not in the traditional like school sense, it was not necessarily, um, from what I understood, it was impacting their school positively and encouraging education, but they were also getting life skills that would more impact their quality of life than necessarily going and learning math. They were learning about food preparation and how to clean things and that would have a more overall impact on their individual lives. Yeah, of course. Wow. Okay, I didn't thought about that. I wondered too, you know, with you traveling to to um, coach rugby, what were some of the things that you had to consider? You you kind of alluded to this earlier, you know, being a, a white male and, and going into, I think you said it was Africa to, to coach. Um, what were some of the things that you really had to consider and, and maybe what were some of the things that some key learnings or key takeaways that you had? Oh, that's a, that's a big question. Um, one... I'll tell one story that kind of highlights um, what we were doing. We were playing against one of Botswana's uh, developmental sevens teams. And we were talking about where we were from. And I said, oh, I was from Canada. Like, and I asked one of the other players, uh, he said, I would love to visit Canada someday. And I said, oh, like you should visit. And he said, I'll never have the money to, to visit Canada. And he was much older than I was. I was 20 at the time and I had the money to, to travel to these, these countries. So that's something I had to think about. Um, was my money better spent on me paying for plane tickets on all these things to get there and coach? Or could my money have been spent better just going directly to organizations that were doing developmental work? Um, and it made me think a lot about um, how this programming should be done. And that's kind of led to to what my research is now, but it was the, the main purpose of my independent study when I came back was critically examining my own experience and what it me meant to be a middle-class white man traveling to, to rural Africa to coach rugby and all the issues that come along with that. Um, so that, that led to, to, okay, how do we do this right? Because I, I think there is a way to do this right. But uh, yeah, those are things I had to constantly think about I would be curious of your thought on how to do this right then, if you if you want to share. But uh, I'm still working on that. That's what my research is on now. That's fair. Focusing yeah. on it. But um, I think focusing more on sustainability of programming and upskilling local uh, staff and coaches to, to hopefully get to the point where, like, I don't need to go there to coach rugby, that it's a self-sustaining program and that um, steps are taken to uh, – to address the issues that we are going there to, to address. So for example, the organization I went with, they built a sport and education community center that has a pitch. It has two classrooms. Um, it's hopefully going to have access to computers or tablets. Um, 
to give the community uh, a constant access to a rugby or a sport. It has uh, volleyball, netball, soccer, and rugby. So constant access to that year round um, and the facilities to go along with that also paired with the educational programming I talked about earlier. And I wonder too, I, I would imagine in your kind of work, especially where you're really trying to build some real practical implications and skills and recommendations that knowledge dissemination and knowledge translation is really, really critical. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, whether you've done any work in that area and what that looks like. Um, so I'm currently uh, working on a, a paper um, conceptualizing how to use knowledge translation in sport for development. So it's funny you bring that up. Um, I took a course last year um, on knowledge translation. Um, and I think that is one of the big issues right now. Like there's great research being done in, in academia of how to do these things properly, but it's not making it to the practitioners in the field because uh, all these journal articles that are being published, they're behind paywalls. And a lot of these sport for development organizations are strapped for funding. They're not going to be paying the subscriptions to all these multiplicity of journals and spending the time to do that. So um, I think trying to figure out how best to get the information that is being done and the great work that is being done in academia and what's, what's the best way to do that um, is a project I'm working on now. Um, I've tried to work with the organization that I've worked with uh, both in 2015 and then in 2019 on getting information to them, but that's a very one-on-one -on -one project um, and it is time intensive, but hopefully uh, working with practitioners and other academics, we can figure out what's the best way to get all this information, great information that's coming out of academia and get it into the field. Um, so that's a big next step. And that's kind of the next wave in the literature that's coming out is that researchers are asking for this, like, what do we do now? We've done all this research looking at the critical aspects of it, but now how do we get this into the field? So that's kind of the next wave of sport for development research that's coming out and what researchers are calling for. And I guess just to sort of piggyback off that, what exactly, how would you define knowledge translation or knowledge, knowledge dissemination? Um, so knowledge translation, I've uh, thought of as working with practitioners to, to develop research, but also to develop the way the research is disseminated. Because um, the way we've traditionally done it in academia, is just not, it's not working for the practitioners it's almost like we're in two distinct worlds um, so knowledge translation to me and what i'm trying to work on in my research is how can we play to the strengths of the academics and the strengths of the practitioners to benefit the individuals in the communities that we're trying to target um, because there's aspects of academia that like ethics, for example, that's that's a hard thing. And we've gone through a lot of training to get that done. And what it, is it, I don't know the answer to this, but is it a good use of practitioners time to be a part of every step of the ethics process? So it's really identifying where, where to involve the different, uh, the different stakeholders so everyone's benefiting and everyone's time is used efficiently. Well, that's... Yeah, that would be great once we have this kind of structure, structure because right now my understanding is that we 
of course, we have sports teacher that is associated with a school, but there are also private club where you can just go by yourself and you will have a sports teacher, but they may not be taught on how to teach. They may yeah. not have a pedagogy and they may not have a tool to reach for better pedagogy. So it's a bit of self-learn for them and for us as well, I guess. So yeah, it will be it will be great for everyone to have access to better information on how to how to teach basically yeah exactly how to do sports so do you already have cues on how to you you talk about ethic for example but basically my question in let me reformulate my question do you already have cues on how to uh, approach a broader community of uh, sports teacher not only those in school but those also in the private sector I think the the one of the biggest steps that you can take is making this information accessible, mm -hmm. like not making practitioners read through hundreds of articles that sometimes we as academics don't even have time to read, um, yeah. but condensing down the important information into whether that's learning sessions, an infographic, a brief summary, um, but making the information more accessible because right now it's 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 not. So how do we do that? Um, and I think that's only possible by working with the practitioners. Like I could say, oh, this is the best way to convey this information, but who am I to say? I, we need to ask the practitioners, how would you like this information delivered? Do you want a two-day seminar led by researchers? Do you want a PowerPoint? Do you want it in a little manual? It's, it's up to them because they know how they're going to use this information. We, we, don't, we need to ask them because they're the ones in the field doing this work. Yeah, that would be great. And yeah, because they said what they want, then they will be more receptive to receive uh, what you have to teach them. So that would be great. Exactly, and that's a big part of knowledge translation is from the start of the research project, we should be asking, what do you think needs to be researched? What are the issues in practice that you think would benefit from having a research project done, from having an understanding from multiple um, organizations doing the same thing, and then work with them throughout the process. And like I said, work with them on the, on the aspects that make sense to involve them in. Um, and then you're right, that's how re the research will be brought up. They'll, they'll have a buy-in, they'll have a stake in it, and they'll, they'll see what they did in the research. I wondered for your your research project that you're doing, um, you know, what what methodology you're using, and if you could talk to us a little bit about that. Um, so, for uh, which re research project are you referring to? Your PhD research. Um, so right now, I'm working on two two studies for my PhD research. One is uh, interviewing uh, clubs that are doing um, newcomer programming. Uh, specific sport newcomer programming. And then the other is a conceptual piece on knowledge translation in sport for development and how to do that. Um, so which, which one would you like me to talk about? Perhaps tell us a bit about the first one because we've, we've chatted a little bit about the knowledge translation piece. Okay, yeah. So we're, um, we're interviewing and doing focus groups, hopefully with uh, clubs that are doing specific programming targeted towards newcomers. Um, so interviewing the, 
the, the heads of clubs and the stakeholders who are involved in establishing the newcomer programming on what the challenges are, um, what the benefits have been, what maybe some of the negative repercussions have been, um, and what, what they, they see as the challenges to the clubs, what they see as the strengths of the clubs in implementing newcomer programming to, to understand what the strengths and weaknesses are and how clubs can be better leveraged to, to use this programming in the future because sport clubs in Canada are well-established and we have newcomers coming in every year. We, by 2030, I think I read, all of our population growth will be due to immigration. So if we can use an established uh, system like sports clubs to benefit newcomer integration, we should do that. Um, and Canada prides itself on being multicultural and uh, sports heavy nation. So why not bring the two together? So we're really looking at interviews and uh, focus groups on how to, to best use the clubs and what the challenges and benefits currently are. Allow me to backtrack just a bit. So you talk, uh, are you collaborating with what you call the newcomer programming? Can you elaborate what is this program? Is it specific um, to Western University or is it larger than that? No, we're interviewing clubs from all over Canada that have, they've developed programming that's specifically for newcomers. So basically they have a list of international people coming into, into Canada and those that go to do sports and then you manage to interview them. I, I have difficulty to understand how, how does it work? It really, it really depends on the club. And that's the thing that we're trying to understand is like, there's no real set way of doing this. Okay. Um, so some clubs, for example, will just put posters out or use social media to say we're running newcomer programming, whereas other clubs will partner with a nonprofit organization that helps with the settlement of newcomers to get athletes. So we, it, var it varies completely by club. And we, so to answer your question, it, it is all over the place with the way that it's happening. So. Okay. And so are you working with specific clubs? Are you sending them an email to maybe try to collaborate with them and have their data? Or how do you contact them? Yeah, so I've emailed a lot of, or a lot of clubs all over Canada and uh, wow. done Google searches of newcomer programming in different provinces, cities, um, different measures to try and find these specific clubs. And a lot of them will have it on their website if they have specific newcomer programming. Um, and then send an email out to them and set up an interview. And that's, that's how we've been going about it so far. And then word of mouth as well. Generally, um, some of these clubs know other people or you've talked to another researcher doing similar work and they've heard of a club. So it's a snowball and uh, specifically searching them out. I would imagine interviewing newcomers, that language is a barrier. So how do you navigate that and also um, I can tell from just our conversation today that, that you're very aware of sort of the cultural piece and being culturally sensitive. So how do you navigate that as well? So we aren't currently interviewing newcomers. Um, we are interviewing the people who are establishing the, the, um, the programming. So generally it's uh, coaches or um, board members or someone in the club who is establishing the programming. And that's who we're interviewing now. It would be great one day in a, a part of a study to do uh, 
interviews with the newcomers, but currently we're just doing it on that to look at the capacity of the clubs to provide newcomer programming. And then an extension and something to possibly look at in the future is the impact that the club is having and the integration is having on the newcomers. I could see that being really meaningful looking, you know, in, in the future at, at sort of not only the impact that the club is having, but maybe what what skills or, or what um, has have people gained from being in this club like we sort of talked about earlier. Yeah, exactly. That would be great. And that would be a, a goal for research eventually. Um, we're just starting at the top. And um, like you said, it's there is complexities to interviewing newcomers. There's language barriers, there's power dynamics and things along those lines. So um, this is kind of an entry into this research and stuff that needs to be more explored. So do you already have some findings on this, on your research that you can share with us? Or is it too uh, soon already? Uh, no findings I can share yet. Um, there are there are things coming up all the time that are surprising, of course, in research. So there's challenges and there's benefits and stuff we've we've not expected yet, but a little too early to share findings yet. You mentioned challenges. I'm curious, um, just overall, if maybe you could share one or two challenges that clubs have had when they're trying to start up uh, a sporting club for newcomers to Canada. Yeah, when, when clubs, so we're, we're interviewing like established clubs that run newcomer programming in uh, the language barrier is, is probably the biggest one that's been identified so far. Um, working with um, newcomers, it's not, you, you don't just need one translator in some cases, you have a variety of newcomers that speak a multitude of languages. So the language barrier is a big one. Um, and it's a finding where so far has been consistent. Um, so hopefully we can identify like, how that can be addressed moving forward to better leverage these sports clubs. Maybe that means having a translator that works with seven clubs who does all the work and in, instead of having one for one club, um, we don't know yet, but yeah, the language barrier is for sure one that is consistent. Yeah. And I'm guessing that's newcomers that come to do sports. It's, you will have similar funding than what you found in African community that's they it does help not only on the physical aspect, but also on their communication aspect and social life and a whole bunch of, of other things that will help them feeling more welcome or more integrated within Canada. Yeah, exactly. We, we don't know, but that's, that's what other research has shown elsewhere. And what we'd, we'd like to find out someday is like just how, how are these sports clubs helping people integrate into the community, both in ways that we might expect like that and ways we might not expect or don't know yet. Um, but it would, it, it's exciting and I'm, I'm looking forward to the next steps for it. Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, it's almost time to wrap up. So maybe is there like a take home message you want to share? Um, just that sport is inherently, it's neither good nor bad. Um, there's been cases of it being bad. There's been cases of it being good. But I think if we figure out how to leverage sport in the most positive way possible, it is a powerful tool for developmental outcomes um, and helping people and helping communities. But we have to be aware of the negatives to, to best address the issues that we hope to with sport. Thank you so much, Justin, for sitting down to talk with us today. We've learned so much, and uh, this is incredible research. 
You've been listening to Gradcast, the official podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I've been your host, Elizabeth Muller, and my co-host is Claire, producer Ariel Frame, and we've been fortunate enough to sit down today with Justin Robo to learn about sports and development. If you want to learn even more about Gradcast, check us out, gradcast.ca, or if you want to get in touch with us, maybe tell us about your research topic, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Further, you can check out some of our episodes on YouTube or you can tune in to us on the radio. Thanks for listening and have a great night.